everybody. I'm Pam Pastor, host of the Grace and Peace of God Love Wins podcast. I'm thrilled that you found me. There is power in the name of Jesus. As we journey together, we will unleash discoveries of how to turn a heart of stone into one of moldable clay for the potter to transform. I hope you'll join me and others each week as we adventure and explore life together. Periodically, we'll delve into my mailbag and answer questions from listeners just like you. If you have a question, make sure and email it to me at pampastorcopywriting at gmail.com. Now, in preparing this episode, my study took me back to the Old Testament prophets. One in particular is instrumental in giving us a view of apocalyptic and messianic messages from a minor prophet's point of view. He wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we read his message and our faith is strengthened. Today, we're actually doing a continuation of the Easter story, which we previously started, but we're looking at the events specifically from Sunday and cataloging them through today, Thursday. And then our next episode is going to look at Friday, Saturday, and Resurrection Sunday. So I hope you'll stay tuned with me for that. But when we contemplate the future, it's then that we all realize that we are really in unchartered territory. And it can be fearful or terrifying to think about. But in an effort to gain certainty, some people seek out seers or fortune tellers. But however, the story that belongs to tomorrow is known only by God and those he deems to tell, who are these special messengers, and that's who were called prophets in the Bible. A prophet was to proclaim the word of the Lord, point out sin, and explain its consequences, calling men and women to repentance and obedience to God. And historically, this devout group of prophets was faithful in adhering to God's calling, despite the constant ridicule and rejection from the people and persecution. At times, God did give them prophetic visions that foretold future events. And Zechariah was responsible for ministering to a small remnant of Jews who returned to Judah to rebuild the temple and their nation. He would encourage the people with the temple rebuilding, but his message went far beyond the physical walls and contemporary life issues. Zechariah would proclaim to these exiles, the king is coming. Jesus is the Messiah, the great deliverer of Israel. And Zechariah was given this prophecy well in advance of 500 years before Jesus's first earthly visit. So me and you can stand in awe as we marvel how faithful God is in keeping his promises. And yet he's promised to come again. As you listen to today's episode, keep in mind our king is coming one day again. He will forever reign. No matter how good you believe your life to be now, it will only be magnified in heaven. This is one of God's great blessings to his children. God is sovereign. He knows and controls the future events. While we can't see past a moment ahead in time, our security is safe when we place our trust in Jesus. Now that we have a little bit of background on Zechariah, 
Why was he important to the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew would draw the line and connect the dots for us, telling us just how Jesus' actions fulfilled the prophet's words. This gives us another strong indicator that Jesus was the true Messiah. We often get used to reading about history and accepting it because it can be fact-checked and verified. But what about prophecy? Biblical prophecy also can be fact-checked and verified. And this year, Palm Sunday is on the calendar. It's slated for April the 2nd, 2023. Now let's step back in time to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. He foretold God's people that Jesus was coming more than 500 years before it happened. He said, Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt. This prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus came to earth. If you recall from our deep dive into the 12 disciples, I mentioned my favorite one being Matthew. An example from his gospel shares his precision and apt attention to detail. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, he writes, Tell the people of Israel, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt. Matthew mentions a donkey and a colt, while the other gospels mention only the colt. While this was the same event, Matthew focused on Zechariah's prophecy. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt symbolized two things for us. First, Jesus's messianic royalty, and second was his utmost humility. Matthew chapter 21 verse 8 said, Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road ahead of Jesus, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This verse highlights Jesus's glory on earth. This is one of the few verses in the Bible that recognizes him for who he really was. When Jesus declared himself king, the crowd joined him. Long live the king was the meaning behind their shouts. But when political pressure swayed the masses, these very same people who had spread palm branches and their coats upon the ground in a welcome celebration and a triumphal entry would be the ones shouting crucify him at the end of the week. Now we celebrate this event on Palm Sunday and must be mindful to guard against superficial acclaim for Christ. Matthew recorded the people shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. And on Palm Sunday to crucify him later in the week doesn't make sense. But scripturally speaking, it makes all the sense in the world. The events of Jesus' last week upon the earth are known as the Passion Week. Sunday through Wednesday, Jesus stayed two miles east of Jerusalem. It's thought that he stayed at the home of his friend Lazarus and his sisters Martha and Mary. And if you recall in the last episode, we discussed Mary pouring the spikenard perfumed oil on Jesus' feet in preparation for his impending burial. Now, what did the events look like on Sunday? 
Palm Sunday. Well, Jesus would be crucified at the end of the week, and the great Passover festival was about to begin. Jews came to Jerusalem from all over the Roman world during this week-long celebration to remember the great exodus from Egypt. Many in the crowds had heard of who Jesus was and hoped he would come to the temple and teach. Jesus did not enter into Jerusalem as a warring king on a horse or in a chariot, but as a gentle and peaceful king on a donkey's colt. Jesus knew the people who heard him teach at the temple would return to their homes throughout the world announcing the coming of the Messiah. The people recognized the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy from chapter 9, verse 9 that we just discussed, yet the people thought Jesus would usher in an earthly kingdom. Everyone heading to Jerusalem for the Passover festival had heard of him, and for a time, the popular mood was favorable toward him. All the disciples needed to tell the colt's owner was, the Lord needs it, and they readily turned the animal over to them. Jesus chose a time when all of Israel would be gathered at Jerusalem, a place where large crowds could see him and a way of proclaiming his mission that was unmistakable. The people went wild. They thought Jesus was going to be a national leader who would restore the nation to its former glory. They were therefore deaf to the prophets and blind to Jesus's real mission. When it became apparent that Jesus wasn't going to fulfill their hopes, many people turned against him. Luke chapter 19 verses 39 and 40 teaches us that Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And Jesus replied, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. The Pharisees thought that the crowds were sacrilegious and blasphemous. They didn't want someone challenging their power and authority, and they didn't want a revolt that would bring down the Roman army on them. They asked Jesus to keep his people quiet, but Jesus said if the people were quiet, the stones would burst out in cheers. Why? Not because Jesus was setting up a political kingdom on earth, but because he was establishing God's eternal kingdom, a great reason for celebration. So Monday comes, fig trees and temples, are, is there a relation? Yes. Jesus was hungry as he was leaving Bethany where he had been staying and he noticed a fig tree that was full of leaves. So he went over to it, but there were no figs, only leaves on it. You see, it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples had heard him say this. So they arrived back in Jerusalem and Jesus enters the temple and he began to drive out the merchants and their customers. He knocked over the tables and the money changers and the stalls of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from bringing in merchandise. He taught them, my temple will be called a place of prayer for all nations, but you, you've turned it into a den of thieves. In Israel, a fig tree was a popular source of inexpensive food. From seedling to fruit bearing, it was probably a span of about three years approximately. But in late spring and early autumn, these trees would produce fruit. So this incident with Jesus happened in the spring when the leaves were budding. And normally the figs grow as the leaves fill out. 
The tree looked promising but produced no fruit. So Jesus' harsh words to the fig tree could be applied directly to Israel, fruitful in appearance yet spiritually barren. How does the temple tie into a fig tree, you may be wondering? Well, during the Passover time frame, money changers and merchants did big business at the temple. People who came from foreign countries needed to have their money exchanged for local currency to pay the temple tax and to buy sacrificial animals. The merchants became exuberantly wealthy, with excessive prices charged to the patrons. Jesus was frustrated with the racketeering and extortion happening. Additionally, the merchants placed their stalls in the temple's courts of the Gentiles who came to worship, and this acted as a barrier for the Gentiles. So the commercialism in God's house frustrated people's attempts at worship. This angered Jesus. Any practice that interfered with worshiping God should be stopped immediately. So just like the fig tree, the temple looked good from a distance, but its sacrifices and other activities were hollow because they were not done to worship God sincerely. Genuine faith will bear fruit in our lives for God's kingdom. So now we come upon Tuesday, and the Sanhedrin leaders challenged Jesus' authority. They wanted to get rid of him. They tried to trap him with their question. They asked, by whose authority did you drive out the merchants from the temple? Who gave you such authority? So then Jesus flips the narrative and asks them a question back. Did John's baptism come from heaven, or was it merely human? Jesus did not let himself get caught. If his answer was his authority was from God, he was the Messiah and the Son of God, and they would have accused him of blasphemy and bring him to trial. So if Jesus answered the Sanhedrin by using parables, first he he told one called the wicked vine dressers, followed by the marriage feast. And here's what he said with the wicked vine dressers. He said, now Jesus turned to the people again and told them this story. A man planted a vineyard, leased it out to tenant farmers and moved to another country to live for several years. At great picking time, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up and sent him back empty handed. So the owner sent another servant, but the same same thing happened. He was beaten up and treated shamefully, and he went away empty-handed. A third man was sent, and the same thing happened. He too was wounded and chased away. What will I do, the owner asked himself. I know. I'll send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. But when the farmers saw his son, they said to each other, Here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to those farmers? Jesus asked. I'll tell you, he will come and kill them all and lease the vineyard to others. But God forbid that such a thing should ever happen, his listeners protested. Jesus looked at them and said, Then what do the scriptures mean? The stone rejected by the builders has now become the cornerstone. All who stumble over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. 
Then, when the teachers of religious law and the leading priests heard this story, they wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was pointing at them, that they were the farmers in the story. But they were afraid there would be a riot if they arrested him. So the Sanhedrin understood what Jesus was teaching the people. They understood the characters in Jesus' story were easily identifiable. The owner in his story was God. The vineyard represented Israel. The tenant farmers are the religious leaders. The servants are the prophets and priests God had sent to Israel. The son is the Messiah. Jesus and the others are the Gentiles. Jesus' parable indirectly answered the religious leaders about his authority. It also showed them that he knew about their plan to kill him. So then Jesus quotes Psalm chapter 118 verse 22 within his parable. He says, The stone rejected by the builders has now become the cornerstone. Jesus is talking about being rejected by his own people. Although he was rejected... Now Jesus is the most important person or cornerstone within the church. The cornerstone is the foundation stone holding the structure together. Jesus was showing the leaders that their rejection had been prophesied in scripture. By ignoring the cornerstone, a person could get uh, tripped up or crushed, meaning judged and punished. While Jesus veiled his comments, the religious leaders understood his inferences. This made them more indignant, wanting to immediately arrest him. And now he goes on and tells another story. Religious leaders questioned Jesus about paying taxes. Watching for their opportunity, the leaders sent secret agents pretending to be honest men. They tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so he would arrest Jesus. They said, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and are not influenced by what others think. You sincerely teach the ways of God. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to the Roman government or not? He saw through their trickery and said, Show me a Roman coin whose picture and title are stamped on it. Caesar, they replied. Well then, he said, Give to Caesar what belongs to him, but everything that belongs to God must be given to God. So they failed to trap him in the presence of the people. Instead, they were amazed by his answer and they were silenced. So Jesus turned this question into a powerful lesson. His enemies once again sought to trap him. He taught as God's followers, we have a legitimate obligation to both God and the government. But it's important that we keep our priorities straight. When the two priorities conflict, we must always follow God. The men who attempted to trick Jesus were enemy spies. They would attempt to flatter him before asking a trick question. As followers of Jesus, we need to use discernment and not allow others to attempt to trap us through vain flattery, hoping to catch us off guard. With the help of God, we can prevent it, avoiding any traps of the enemy. Every day during the Passion Week, Jesus went to the temple to teach, and each evening he returned to spend the night on the Mount of Olives. The crowds gathered early each morning to hear him. Jesus would warn of the desecration of the temple. His disciples so admired. This was not Solomon's temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. This temple had been built by Ezra in the 6th century and then demolished by the Seleucids. 
The Maccabees re-consecrated it, and Herod the Great enormously expanded it over a 46-year time period. True to Jesus' word, in 70 AD, the temple was completely destroyed. Jesus warned his disciples of impending difficulties. He also let them know they were never alone. Late in the second century, the church father, Tertullian, wrote, The blood of Christians is seed, because opposition had helped spread Christianity. When we feel completely abandoned by family or by friends, and we're left standing alone, we can be comforted knowing the Holy Spirit never leaves us. He's our protector. He will even give us the words we need when facing grave opposition. This allows us to stand firm in Christ. None of Jesus' followers would suffer spiritual or eternal loss. Remember, don't fear those who can harm the body. Rather, fear the one who can take the body and the soul. The time was drawing near. The religious leaders plotted to kill Jesus. All boys over the age of 12 were required to go to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. This was followed by a seven-day celebration called the Festival of the Unleavened Bread. The Sadducees stepped forward with another loaded question for Jesus. They did not believe in the resurrection, only in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which never mentions a resurrection. Even the question asked of Jesus had always uh, dumped the Pharisees. They asked a question about marriage, but the real concern was about the resurrection and their unbelief. Jesus answered them using the writings of Moses, who they had respected. Like Jesus, we too can learn when people ask us tough religious questions, we should not belittle them or ignore them. Since God knows what I'm going to do, where is the free will choice they may ask us? We must see beyond the question or the smoke screen, so to speak, to the real issue at hand. Maybe the person has had a tragedy in life. Oftentimes, people use the spoken question as a mere test, like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It isn't a reflection on our abilities to answer their questions, but it's more a reflection of, do we care enough to listen to what their real concern is? Jesus taught all day long, and I'm sure well into the evening hours. He had much to cover, and the Pharisees would question him about commandments, about himself and David, and none of this matters until a decision is made regarding the central issue, which is what we believe about Jesus. Other spiritual questions are really irrelevant until that one is addressed and answered. And Jesus makes his last public sermon on Tuesday. He warns against religious leaders cheating the poor because of their position and influence. He told the people that the widows who gave all she had was more generous and sacrificial than the rich men who gave a large amount of money but kept even more for themselves and she only gave one widow's mite. On this Tuesday, Judas Iscariot makes the deal to betray Jesus. We don't know the details of Jesus' life on Wednesday, but what we do know is that like clockwork, it was soon Thursday. During the day, the Passover preparations were being tended to in Jerusalem. Later that evening in the upper room, Jesus would show the full extent of his love to the disciples. This was the night Jesus gave his final instructions to prepare the disciples for his death, burial, and resurrection. These events would change their lives forever. 
Jesus washed and dried his disciples' feet, and this Thursday gets the name Maundy Thursday, as it means the ceremony of washing the feet of the poor. While it is a ritual, Jesus pointed out, not all of the feet he was washing were clean. He knew he was about to be betrayed, yet in an effort to glorify God, he lovingly washed and dried all of their feet. This was usually a household servant's job. In episode 5 of season 3, Easter with Jesus, we discussed the Last Supper in detail. And this was the night that the Last Supper or the Passover meal was eaten together. In the Passover meal, and then we looked at Gethsemane, Jesus was soon to be the final Passover lamb. He ate the traditional Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room of a house in Jerusalem. During the meal, they partook of the bread and wine, which would be the elements of the future communion celebrations, and then went out to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. In Jerusalem, Jesus prays for himself. He said in John chapter 17, verse 1, Father, the time has come glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. Jesus also prays for his disciples and he prays for you and he prays for me, his future believers. He teaches us that the entire world is a battleground where the forces under Satan's power and those under God's authority are at war. Satan and his forces are motivated by bitter hatred for Christ and his forces. Jesus prayed for his disciples and us that we would be kept safe from Satan's power, setting us apart in the truth. We know the truth is Jesus. And finally, Jesus didn't ask for us believers to be taken out of the world, but rather for us believers to be used within the world. He wants all of his disciples unified in God's love. Or if we struggle with what love is, then we need to start with cherishing one another as we journey toward authentic love. My hope is that you've rediscovered Jesus's journey during the Passion Week. Tomorrow, tune in as we look at the events of Good Friday through Resurrection Sunday. And friends, Today, if you want to become a child of God and spend eternity in heaven, not somewhere else, then I invite you to pray this prayer of invitation to our Lord Jesus Christ. Simply repeat after me, Lord Jesus, I repent and turn away from my sins. Come into and take up residence within my heart. I believe your blood was shed for all who believe that you took on the sin of humanity at the cross of Calvary. Amen. And friends, if you prayed that prayer of salvation, I believe you were saved and born again spiritually. Your next step is to read God's word daily so he can guide, direct, and reveal himself to you. And get into a good Bible-based church to surround yourself with other believers. Now let me be the first to congratulate you on the most important decision you have ever made. Congratulations and God bless you. One of Priest Aaron's contributions he left for us is this benediction. As you go out into the world, allow me to pray this blessing over you from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show his favor and give you his peace. Amen. And the Grace and Peace of God Love Wins podcast will be available most days during the week. A special Kid Talk podcast airs on Wednesdays. 
So tune in along with your kiddos for your favorite Bible stories that you grew up with. We'll be discussing and sharing Jesus's unlimited power in our present day lives. We delve into many topics such as forgiveness, how to be joyful, and what love in action looks like in many more topics. I invite you and your friends to come alongside me as we embark on a podcast of adventure and exploration of life together. So please join me. And if you like this podcast, make sure and like and subscribe so you'll get the latest episodes when they become available. And much of today's podcast was referencing my book, The Grace and Peace of God Love Wins. If you found the content inspiring or interesting, you can pick up a copy of the book from my website, pampastorcopywriting.com, or at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or my publisher, Dorrance.com. And if you're unable to afford a copy, please write to me and I'll find a way to get a free copy into your hands. If you know anyone who may be interested in this material, please share it with them as well. Until next time, friends, be blessed.